at News from the North, Riders of Rohan. Hello, welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. I am joined today by your host, Michael Roland, a.k.a. Finrod Felagoon. Oh, very nice. And I'm joined <laughs> today by Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Elrond, half elven. Half oh, elven. All right. Um, Today's a really big news day, so we're going to take a break from our analysis of Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Fellowship of the Ring, which we hope you've been enjoying, and focus exclusively on all of the leaks from the show. So, warning, this episode will contain spoilers about the show. I feel like that's a warning we should have been saying uh, in the 20 episodes before this. The whole time. (laughs) We've been spoiling (laughs) things left and right and just never gave anybody a warning. Yeah, so true. I mean, hopefully we're we're spot on with our speculation, but yeah. that remains to be seen. Yeah, I, I guess if you've been listening to us so far, you're already down with the spoilers. But for any new listeners that are listening to this for the first time, this episode and future episodes, to a certain extent, will definitely contain spoilers. This one's going to contain a ton. Yes, um, indeed. And since the last time we did an all all news episode, or, or even discussed news in our intro segments to other episodes. Um, there's just been a ton of new information. Uh, Tons. Like, really kind of earth-shaking, ground-shattering. That's uh, incorrect use of blowing. metaphors. Yeah, there we go. Um, house exploding. Is that is that a thing? No. <laughs> um, but so here's what we're going to cover today. First, Howard Shore and Bear McCreary have been tapped, where it is rumored that they have been tapped to be composers for the show. Second, the person in the official set image overlooking the uh, overlooking the island of Tolarestia during the Years of the Trees is Finrod, Galadriel's brother. We will also see a young child Galadriel, possibly also Galadriel crossing the Helcorexe as she walks with the Northern Exiles from Valinor to Middle-earth. And Galadriel will be seen walking across vast plains and climbing mountains. So a lot of Galadriel news. Uh, fourth, Isildur is rumored to be one of the main characters that will be in season one from episode three onwards. Fifth, in an interview with the BBC, Sir Lenny Henry confirms that he is playing a hobbit and he makes several other statements about the show and what it's about. So we'll get into all of that. And last, season one will feature a big battle between Numenorians and orcs. And we know that the orcs are going to be primarily uh, sort of live makeup uh, you know, from Weta Workshop rather than CGI. There's a lot of sub news within all that, but those are sort of the highlights. So let's go get into the first one. Um, Howard Shore. Coming back. Do, 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 do. I mean, mm-hmm. I just love that. I love that concerning Hobbit's theme. So beautiful. I'm really excited that he's going to be involved. I think it's going to create great continuity for all the fans of Lord of the Rings to hear him back at it. And he is working with another really legendary composer, Bear McCreary. So he's done, according to the article I'm reading from L- LMR Online, he's done Godzilla, Outlander, Black Sails, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., 10 Cloverfield Lane, um, and he's also the God of War composer. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see two kind of big dogs team up and what they can come up with. But regardless, I just love that Howard Shore is involved. It gives me a lot of confidence. And that was a great call. Do you think that with Howard Shore being involved, they're going to be reusing some of the themes from the films? I hope so. Again, I think it's if we so you see do, the you Shire. You do want that. 
I do actually. I think there'll be enough room for reimagining because there'll be places we've never seen before. So naturally, you're going to need new themes for these places that that are new to us. But I would love if there's some recycled material Mm. because I think it creates a sense of nostalgia and familiarity, especially because we know there'll be a lot of scenes shot um, regarding hobbits, even if it's not in Hobbiton. Um, I think that could be a really exciting thing for fans. It certainly makes sense from a marketing perspective, just a business perspective, to make the show connected to the movies in terms of music, sets, the look and feel. It certainly makes sense to have some continuity there. I think I've mentioned before that I I was hoping that they would not do that or at least resist the urge to just make a blatant play for all the prior fans and just make another sort of Peter Jackson-inspired version. Uh, Not that I have anything against Peter Jackson's films. I love them to death. But I just want to see something new and I just want to mm-hmm. see a, a reimagining and a different version. And Peter Jackson's sensibilities are certainly not the only way to interpret the and represent the text and the, the legendarium. There's a lot of other ways to, to do it. And I am hoping and still hoping, of course, to see something that's very different. And so every time I get a piece of news that indicates they are bringing back some artistic elements from the films, whether it be Howard Shore's score you know, Weta being involved, not that I have anything against either Howard Shore or Weta. It just the more that they bring in elements from the movies, the more I'm worried it's just going to feel like another Peter Jackson um, inspired movie. So I was really hoping for something different. And it just feels like it's getting to be more and more like a Jackson production. I, I think, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I think it's just going to be inherently so different because it's mm-hmm. such different subject matter. We don't even they're going to go off script a lot, I think. Um, and, and I don't think they're going to stick strictly to canon, uh, based on what we're even discussing today. Um, and different script writers, different showrunners. I think it will be different enough that, yeah, I just, I, I'm excited for the nostalgia bit, but, uh. Well, and you know, you talked about concerning hobbits and how much you like that theme. And we'll talk about this later, but with hobbits definitely being a part of the show and Howard Shore potentially being a composer for the show. You're probably going to get to hear that theme. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I would be happy about that. I love that theme. <laughs> who's who's Bear McCreary? Yeah, Bear McCreary. Um, I read his list of, of credits already. I know he's done um, Godzilla. I, I have seen Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. 10 Cloverfield Lane was pretty excellent. Yeah, so like he seems I don't pretty lit. I mean, he seems pretty legit, a definitely very dramatic and very epic work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's clear he has a style and preferences for the things he works on. This seems like a good fit to me. Sure, sure. And well, it seems like he is very much the it guy um, for a lot mm-hmm. of these shows. He's done a lot of major shows uh, in terms of shows that have original scores and orchestral scores or um, unique. Uh, like I was reading up a little bit on on what he'd done and, and he he's pretty creative in terms of uh, mixing orchestral scores with uh, electronica and other sound effects and, and kind of mixing those together in unique ways to create a, a unique effect. Uh, mm-hmm. He's certainly capable of doing like Celtic inspired themes. Um, look at um, Outlander, you know, the, the music in that sh- show is very much Celtic inspired. So it seems like a good fit. And I'm kind of curious what, the collaboration would be like, you know, how, when you oh, have two that's exactly composers, what I was thinking. How, how does that work? 
how does that work? I, I'm excited to hear about their process after the fact, because you these are two very well established composers. So you just wonder if they're how does it work with not stepping on each other's toes or are they bringing a piece to each other and reworking it, getting feedback? Yeah. Who knows? Because um, I think for both of these guys, like Howard Shore, think about the way Howard Shore did the Lord of the Rings score. I mean, it was it was a masterwork. Mm-hmm. Partly because he conceived of all the different musical themes, not, not not at the same time, but they are all kind of interrelated. The the score mm-hmm. is constantly quoting itself and quoting one theme flows into another theme or or quotes right. elements from a different theme, but in a different way that creates a new theme. And so the score is like one cohesive thing, artistic piece. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Bear McCreary has sort of a similar approach where he thinks conceptually about what he wants the music for the show to be globally. And that feeds into and informs every minor aspect, every smaller piece of what he's doing. And so, okay, now you have two guys who like to conceive of the whole project and have that whole global concept inform each small piece. How are you, how are they going to break it up? Because it doesn't work for them to be like, you take this song and I take this song. And then they're like totally disjointed and, and not, but I wonder if that's how they did it. I wonder if they assigned them. Okay. You're doing this, you know, this realm, you're doing this realm, you're doing this motif. Oh, who who knows? Who knows? But they're, they're collaborating and making sure that it's sounding like it could be the same. Well, who knows? This is wild speculation, but that is an uh, interesting idea. Like one does the, the realm of men, one works on the elven themes. And so, it's actually different composers. So totally different, not just different themes, but different aesthetics and different styles, sensibilities for each. That's, that's an interesting idea. It could be because these worlds are so different as well. You know, if we see Numenor, for example, and then we flash back to middle earth, it it could work that they sound really disparate and really different. Right. They're completely different places. Even though this is not uh, like for many people, it won't seem like as exciting of spoiler information. I think the score plays an outsized role in how we experience shows in general, but especially Lord of the Rings shows. I mean, you know, the Lord of the Rings films without Howard Shore's score would just not be the same. You think it's going to win Oscars without Howard Shore's score? I'm sorry. They're not. You know, Howard Shore's score is is huge, huge, huge. And it's when you talk about nostalgia and the the ooey gooey feelings you feel inside when you watch that that movie. A lot of it is from the themes. Like I hear the music. You talked about you hear the concerning Hobbits themes like, oh, I get all you know, fluttery inside just, you know, hearing that music. Um, and so having a great, great score as a part of the show is going to be a huge element um, towards a success or failure if the score is no good. So I'm glad they got these two titans um, of the compositional world to to collaborate and be a part of this. Mm, I second this. Well, the next piece of news we got here. So in episode, I think, was it episode 15 was our, the last all news episode. And we talked about, uh, they released a set image that showed an unidentified figure on a hill overlooking, uh, basically overlooking Valinor or, you know, it looked like Tolaresia, which is the um, Island where the elves live in the ageless or, um, immortal realm. And you could see the, the two trees of Valinor in the background. So, okay, this is years of the trees, some elf from, you know, pre first age. And that set the internet ablaze because everyone's, everyone had thought this is a purely second age show. And then here's a set image teasing at least a scene Mm -hmm. from not just first age, but pre first age um, plot. Okay. So who is this character? And it has since been revealed that it was 
at first it was revealed, okay, it's one of Galadriel's brothers and there were three options there. Um, but it's, it's pretty much been, I think it's either been totally confirmed or mostly confirmed that it is Finrod Thalagund. So I think this is pretty interesting. I, I'm really excited that it's Finrod. I think he is a true hero. He is not an anti-hero. He is a true blue good guy. Right. And he is really important in the story. And he's he does, although some elements of his life are tragic, he leaves his great love behind when he leaves the leaves Valinor. Um so he carries a torch for this woman, but right. he also has a ro- he also has a romance with a human woman during his life. Um, but he's responsible for founding really important cities, um, Nargothrond, yeah. which we'll probably see. He is the ruler there. He's so heroic in that he saves Baron in Baron and Luthien, um, sacrifices his life for him. He's just a, he's an all around good guy, and I think. Um, also having that connection with Galadriel and seeing the two of them together right. is going to be really cool for fans because we've only seen Galadriel as an individual. Yes, she's married, but her husband is like barely in the films. Right. Um, <laughs> so yeah, this is this is great. I think he plays a major role, and I'm I'm excited that it's him. Yeah, he plays a major role in the in the Legendarium. I don't think he's going to be a major character in the show. Um, I think what his appearance in this image most likely telegraphs is the importance of Galadriel. And we already knew that she was going to be a main character. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually, you know, Jen, you know this, we, we created an agenda and plan to do a deep dive Galadriel episode. We've been sitting on this for like, you know, I don't know, several months. We just, it hasn't been, time hasn't been right. I think we'll probably do it before we get to La Florian and the films to do the whole backstory of Galadriel. But, you know, in preparation for that episode, we talked a lot or we're preparing to talk a lot about the relationship between Finrod and Galadriel and how Finrod could potentially uh, in the form of flashbacks um, or references to ancient history play an important role in Galadriel's arc because Finrod has an interesting connection to Celebrimbor and it's been widely believed mm-hmm. that Celebrimbor is going to be heavily featured in the show. So Finrod and you touched on this, how he's, he's a friend to men and not just a friend. He's actually the first elf to encounter men in Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. He basically discovered them. He's also a musician, so close to my heart. And so actually the story goes <laughs> that when he stumbled upon men and discovered the first men, they were you know sleeping and he took out his harp and he played the harp and sang to them and using Osanwe, which is basically like kind of like elven telepathy, using that word, it sort of does it in injustice, but... Um, the idea is he sang to them and when they awoke, it was like as if he had put dreams into their mind. It was like they, through the song, had developed an understanding of things, um, mm-hmm. a greater understanding of things. And so um, he sort of sang certain ideas and beauty into their minds. And he became a, he was a true friend to men ever after. And mm-hmm. eventually, you know, his friendship and connection to men sort of ended up being his downfall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had, he had sworn an oath to help Baron's ancestor. And so when Baron needed some help to, you know, do the impossible task of stealing the Silmaril from Morgoth's crown, uh, Finrod, who was the king of Nargothrond, said, yeah, we got to help. But some of Fëanor's sons who lived with him, this is where Celebrimbor comes into play, Celebrimbor's uncles, they sort of agitated against that. Um, And so Finrod ended up saying, all right, well, 
all my people, you don't have to go. I guess you've decided to go with Caleb and Bor's uncles. And uh, so I'm going to help Baron alone. And so Finrod ended up dying in the course of helping Baron and Lufian in their struggle against Morgoth. And so that's where sort of the nexus between Finrod, Galadriel, and Caleb Brimbor comes into play because Caleb Brimbor's mm-hmm. uncles were sort of ostensibly or in some, some way responsible for Finrod's death. And Galadriel will probably be aware of that. Right, because they barred other elves from going with Finrod to help him in his quest to help Baron. Right. So he is indirectly responsible. Yeah. Right? He's they're indirectly responsible, which could definitely drive a wedge. Yeah. Um now Killer Brimbor wasn't guilty of that. He 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 actually distanced himself no. from his uncles. So he said, I'm not down with what you're doing. Um and, and his uncles did other uh, bad acts. I mean, like one of his uncles basically was um, jealous of Baron and wanted Lufian for himself. So they right. actually like shot at Baron. There's this whole thing. So they were, uh, Caleb Brimbor's uncles were bad dudes. Um, mm-hmm. But Caleb Brimbor disavowed them and said, I'm not down with what you did. You know, I'm leaving you behind. So in that way, it, they could play it different ways where Gla- Galadriel still holds a grudge and resents Caleb Brimbor because of his familial connection notwithstanding the fact that he disavowed them. Or she could say she could like him, especially because he disavowed his uncles. Uh, so they could they could play it different ways. But either way, that history, I'm sure, is going to inform the relationship between Galadriel and Kella Brimbor, or it should if they're Definitely. focusing on that relationship. So that's why we were going to speculate, boy, Finrod is, if, if he's not a present character, he will be referred to subtly mm-hmm. and it will be sort of the backstory that informs the relationship between Galadriel and Celebrimbor that will be a major uh, plot point a major part of the show so now seeing that Finrod is confirmed to have some he's going to be depicted in some way in the show probably in the first two episodes because it seems like um, the first two episodes the more and more uh, leaks that we get the more and more that we learn the more and more that I believe those first two episodes are actually going to be a long prologue that mm-hmm. that talks about the first stage and years of the trees and gives the whole backstory. Um, and then the real show starts in episode three. So you speculated that was what they were going to do a while back. And I was like, nah, they can't do that. That's ridiculous. I think they're doing that. Yeah. I think they're doing that. And I think that we might see some glimpses of Finrod in, in those first two episodes. Yeah, definitely. And I think that brings us nicely to our next segment regarding Galadriel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, we got a few different Galadriel spoilers. Um, so first I should mention that the, the, the information that the person in the, the image is Finrod that came from fellowship of fans and several of our uh, news pieces here that we're talking about this week did come from fellowship of fans. So I want to give credit where credit is due. And this particular piece of news also came from fellowship of fans um, in season one. This came from fellowships tweet. It says, quote, in season one, we won't only see young Galadriel, played by Morphin Clark, but now child Galadriel as well. Galadriel will be visually portrayed as an 11 to 12 year old girl, 11 to 12 being like in human years, in the first season with the actress playing young Eldian being around that age. And the young Eldian, I think, is a reference to the code name for the, uh, the like casting description. Um, so this is interesting. I don't know what to make of it. There's nothing anywhere in the Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, anywhere in the Legendarium that talks about Galadriel as a young child. So I'm not sure what to make of it. They're going to be depicting her as a child because that would be really, really, really ancient history. Um, And I'm not sure 
at what point a significant event would have happened where she was that young. I think that it's just giving Galadriel, let's give her the most well-rounded story arc that we can. And mm-hmm. in order to do that, I think it's smart to give someone a whole backstory of growing up in this beautiful paradise. Um, who was she? You know, there are some exchanges. Granted, she's a little older than 11 and 12, but there are exchanges with her mother that we do read about. Um, there's exchanges with a lot of people when she's in the blessed realm. Um and I think just seeing flashes of her as a child and, and her family situation will be helpful in understanding her character as a whole. So I'm actually glad that they're doing this. And they may take a lot of creative liberties and that is okay because we don't have that much information mm-hmm. of her childhood. We have just like um, general information. So yeah, I'm curious. And I, I, think it's a, I think it's a great thing though that she's a principal character and they're going to give her a really well-rounded character arc. I'm trying to think of what significant event occurred when she was that, when she could have been arguably that age, because that'd be the only real reason to depict a child Galadriel is to show it like her witnessing as a, as a young elf, young elf child witnessing some significant event that changed the way that she grew up and informed the rest of her life. And so what could that event be? Because uh, she was already an adult before the when the trees were destroyed by Morgoth and Ungoliant. So it can't be that event. I wonder if they would change the timeline to make it that event, just to say, see how what an impression this right, left. Right, right. Or perhaps, you know, it says, it, I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, but we are going to see Galadriel crossing the Hel Karakse. Perhaps she does this as a child. Right. Which is even more harrowing. Um, yeah, that was actually my theory, um, and I agree with you there. Now, just to confirm, just to be clear, it is not confirmed that we'll see the Hilkaraxa. So, what Fellowship was tweeting is is more of a speculation. He he's he is generally very clear when he mm-hmm. is um, spilling the beans on something that is confirmed, and when it's just a rumor. And so, something that he had spoiled. Um, he had leaked set photos like a year ago of what appeared to be an icy snowy uh, set piece. And so it was speculated early, early on that, Oh, maybe we will see in one of these first couple of episodes when we're doing flashbacks and, and prologue, maybe we'll see the crossing of the hell correct. Now that's not confirmed, but people are wondering, well, what is this snowy set piece going to be for? And so as we get more and more information and it looks more and more likely that, the first two episodes will be a prologue. Well, it definitely fits in if if we're going to mm-hmm. see child Galadriel, which would be certainly like her youth in Valinor, and probably something after the Noldor leave Valinor and come to Middle Earth. It would make sense to depict the crossing of the Helcoraxa, and so I, th- I think it's probably likely that we will see Galadriel cross Helcoraxa, and it would make sense to age her down. I mean, I wouldn't love it that change. I think it's unnecessary, but. I think that's could be where they're going with it, that she is crossing as a child and it's this traumatic event, this traumatic journey that where they lose so many of their brothers and sisters on the, on the way for her to experience that as a child and then arrive in middle earth, that would uh, be a very, very dramatic turn of events. I think a very dramatic portrayal. It would be very dramatic, especially because they weren't, she Galadriel and her brothers weren't even fully on board with, with leaving the the blessed realm they just wanted they wouldn't abandon their cousins and they 
felt compelled to go for many different reasons. But uh, that's a complicated story that I think right. they might explain a little bit. Yeah, in in the Silmarillion, it's not only that Galadriel didn't w- w- wasn't fully on board with going with Fanor. She actually, um, in one version of the tale, which is not the published Silmarillion, but she actually didn't travel with the rest of the Noldren exiles. She like built a boat and went on her own. And actually in that version, I think um, uh, her husband who eventually in, in the published version, she met in middle earth in that version, she had met her husband in Valinor and they sailed together. They built a ship and went separately. So like Tolkien really wanted, he was toying around with different ways to distance her from the bad acts of Feanor. So you you could see him in different drafts and different different stories. He always wanted Galadriel to be very separate from Feanor's sins, um, and she was always very independent minded and had her own her own agenda. And her agenda was: I want to go to Middle Earth and be a great elf and rule my own lands on my own. Mm-hmm. And um, I basically I want to see the wide world and see what I can make of myself. Um, that's mm-hmm. you know putting my own spin on it, but that's essentially I think. A version of Galadriel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Which becomes so that becomes different if she is a child. Then all those motivations aren't present at the time she is uh, Mm. crossing the Helcodexit. Like that has to be wiped out. Which is why I wouldn't love it because seeing her arc where she starts out kind of a little prideful. You know, that's that was the motivation for her going to Middle Earth. Is I'm a little prideful. I I, I want to be my own great uh, elf queen um, and rule rule over some lands. Um, and I think that pride lessens over time. And I think that is a, could be an important part of her arc. If they make her a child when she's crossing the Helcoraxa, it's a totally different thing. So, um, but you know, it could go either way. It's, it's just interesting to think about. Yeah, definitely. And what is it with, I was going to say, what is it with bad uncles in this series? Like did Tolkien have a bad uncle? Because <laughs> we should mention that her, you know, for those not familiar, her bad uncle is the one who, her nasty uncle was the one who was leading this excursion to Middle Earth. Right. Right. So yeah, it's just funny. It's a recurring little motif. Not there. just a bad uncle, but kind of a creepy uncle. Yeah, definitely. Super creepy. Yeah. There's, there's a little story. So, you know, Fanor created the Silmarils by capturing the light of the two trees. And it is said that Feanor, he was inspired to create the Silmarils because Galadriel's hair was so beautiful that people like to say <gasps> her hair captured the light of the two trees. And so he was inspired by that, by her hair. And he actually said, yes. can I have some of your tr- some of your hair? And Galadriel denied him. Said, she no, refused. I will not give you my hair. And so they were, they were never friends after that. What if this is what they're going to depict if she's a child and he's like, give me some of your, how creepy is that? Give <laughs> yeah, the me some uncle. of your hair. Give me your, give but me your she's hair, like child. refusing even as a child saying, you know, yeah, defying her cool. uncle. I could see right. this being depicted because the Silmarils are so important, right? Right, right. And so that's that ends up being part of why he creates the Silmarils is, well, I'm going to, to do in a gem what Galadriel's hair has done. I'm going to capture the light of the trees and put it right. into this gem. So. Um, it could certainly, I, I would love to see that because it's just such a key moment in Galadriel's, if you're going to get into Galadriel's backstory, seeing her defiance a, that in the face of the moment, greatest yeah. elf, you know, quote unquote, the greatest elf and wisest and most brilliant Feanor, um, that's a big moment. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Woo. Now I'm excited. So uh, another piece of Galadriel news, Fellowship of Fans also says that Galadriel, this is quote, Galadriel and an elven company will travel across a vast plain and climb mountains in episode one. 
until they visit a cave and encounter a cave troll. So I've been thinking about this, you know, factor this into what prologue type scenes we could see. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I mean, a vast plane. I keep trying to fit it into the Helcoraxa, but that's not a plane. No, I just sure. I think this is them just getting to where they're going to settle in Middle Earth. This is all. I think this is all just part of that journey. That's what I. That's all I can think of. Yeah, I th- I think you're right because you know she travels with a group of which Celebrimbor is a part, and there are a couple mm-hmm. different versions of Celebrimbor's history. But you know, generally they they're traveling around and they. Now I'm blanking on the the name, but um. They have to travel through, well, they have to travel through Moria, um, Casa Doom at some point, but I don't think that that's the, the mountains that they're climbing because that's not really, I mean, Moria is under the mountains. So that would constitute climbing a mountain. That would be like going into the cave. So they could be climbing around uh, the Misty Mountains or what's now the Misty Mountains. Sure. Um, but, yeah. you know, them encountering a cave troll. So I think that's interesting because it has been said that they actually can't use the phrase cave troll, that they are barred by intellectual property law from using that phrase because the rights holders, uh, the people that hold the rights to all the movies, you know, cave troll is a phrase that was used in the movies and they still hold those rights and Amazon, I guess, didn't acquire those rights. So whenever they reference like cave troll, they're apparently going to use the, the name like ice troll or snow troll, I think. So, they're not going to have cave trolls, but they're going to have ice trolls. So okay. to the extent that they are climbing around, like they're crossing the Helcoraxa and climbing a mountain and running to some ice trolls, that would fit in with the Helcoraxa connection. But sure. I, I certainly don't think that's what it is if they're traveling across a vast plain. I mean, plains don't evoke a snowy topography. So I don't know. Well, that's a different section. Yeah. I just think in essence, it's going to be a harrowing journey to get to Middle Earth, which it was. Right. Um, and I think it's important that we see that the elves settling in Middle Earth is a really big piece of the story. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right that it is probably to the extent it's setting up everything that's going to happen in the Second Age. Um, it will be Galadriel leading an elven company to establish the elven city that becomes the city where Celebrimbor forges the the elven rings and all the rings of power. I think right. that's what this is. I think so too. It's all it's all a build up, which is cool because it just means we're we're gonna have a lot of seasons. Yeah. So here is the newest piece of news, and this one really kind of blew my socks off. Um, again, from Fellowship of Fans, Isildur will be one of the main characters from around Episode Three onwards in the upcoming show. So, Episode Three onwards, we're gonna get Isildur, which blows my mind because. Isildur is near the end of the second age. So this totally changes what I thought this show was going to be about. I thought we were going to start the show relatively early in the second age. I thought we were going to see the forging of the rings. I thought we're going to see, yeah, I thought Mm -hmm. the show was going to cover thousands of years and then maybe uh, end with Isildur and maybe the war of the last Alliance or maybe just the downfall of Numenor. But no, mm-hmm. we're getting Isildur from episode three right off the bat. So uh, this changes things significantly. It just, it, it it underscores to me that they're being very, I think they're going to be very flexible. I don't think there's a way that they could do this without changing some things and messing with some things. And I'm, I'm honestly okay with that. 
Whether or not it's totally necessary is debatable, but I see why they want to use Isildur. He's like a familiar character. People will really remember him from the prologue in The Fellowship of the Rings. I'm thinking of just movie fans here. Right. And he's explaining his backstory a little bit more and his character could be a cool thing, but the timeline, they're definitely going to have to do some weird uh gymnastics with the timeline here i'm not really sure how this fits i'm I'm, i have no idea so i've been thinking it could mean a couple things so it could mean that we're actually not going to get to see the forging of the rings of power at least as not as part of the main plot that will all be wrapped up in the first two episodes the prologue so we're going to get a you know a quick run through you know first age galadriel Silmaril is just as backstory or it's going to take us right up through Celebrimbor and he's going to forge the rings of power and and there's going to be the initial war between men and elves that's all going to be wrapped up in the first two episodes just sort of in summary fashion and that the main show is going to deal with um you know the age of Isildur uh and it probably have Isildur his his father Elendil his grandfather and that those will be the main characters and we're really going to take our time with really what is the Acalabeth and the Silmarillion, the downfall of Numenor. And that's what's going to be the focus of the show. That's option one. Mm-hmm. Option two, I think, is they're going to tell multiple stories from different timelines at the same time. They're going to tell Isildur's story in chronological fashion, but they're also going to tell the story of Celebrimbor and Galadriel sort of at the same time in chronological fashion, but they're just going to jump back and forth. So they're going to, they're going to, tell the story from multiple timelines at once. I don't know if I like that option. I think I like option option one a lot better because that is a great story. It's certainly action packed. Right. A lot of, a lot of battles, which seems to make sense from what we're hearing. There are epic battle scenes already. Um, But I, I don't, I think that could get really confusing. The second option of jumping around for fans. I, I just, I don't love that. So I, I don't know. That's I, what it is. Yeah, I, I kind of disagree. I mean, I don't know, but it would be so interesting and it would be so novel and it would be an opportunity to do some really great and fascinating things with the storytelling. Like, I, I certainly don't think you need to tell the story and just like, you know, you start at point A and you end up at point Z. You know, you don't need to run. Th- this story does not need to be told chronologically um, start to finish. It just doesn't need to be told that way. And I was honestly worried about the fact that it seemed like they were going to be starting early in the second age and trying to cover the entire second age in one show, like covering 2000, 3000 years in five, six seasons. I was like thinking to myself, that cannot possibly really work. You can't spend enough time with the characters. The passage of time is going to be totally unrealistic. Things are going to happen too quickly. And so doing it a little differently where you have multiple storylines happening simultaneously from different time periods allows you to spend the time and tell those stories uh, deeply um, and telling them at the same time, you can do interesting parallels. Connections will be made in a weird way. It's just, it's an interesting opportunity. It obviously has to be done well. Um, Yes. You know, it could create, I, I love actually movies where you don't necessarily know where a scene falls in the chronology. And so actually telling multiple storylines at different times could play with that because you could have a character like Gilgalad, like Galadriel, 
And unless there's some piece of information in this scene to pinpoint where you are in time, unless they go out of their way to tell you what time it is, you're not going to be able to tell uh, whether it's, you know, 1000 in the second age or the year 3000 in the second age, if it's just a scene of the Galadriel because she is ageless and all the elves are ageless. So you, all the elven scenes, if they don't tell you when it's happening, you won't know. And it could be confusing, but in a great way, in a way that we're like, people are gathering around the water cooler and going, what do you think this scene means? Uh, you know, what storyline is it a part of? Um, that sort of mystery element will make it so much more interesting uh, on watches and rewatches and, you know, triple rewatches. Now that I'm thinking of it, it is similar to the way that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote himself and that you weren't always totally, he wasn't, you weren't always totally clear on timeline and he he did that on purpose. Right. Right. Actually. And so, like you know, stylistic choice, you know, getting back to our um, sort of framework for how we think about adaptations. I mean, that would be a way of telling the story that, that might kind of jive with Tolkien's own writing style. You know, he didn't, he didn't write the Silmarillion in that way because the Silmarillion was more of a summary. He didn't write any novel length stories within the Silmarillion. Um, so it's, I'm not saying that he wrote the Silmarillion in that way, but to your point, he wrote the Lord of the Rings kind of in that way yes. where you, uh, he puts the audience in the same position as some of the characters where you don't know chronologically where, when all the scenes were happening in relation to each other. And so doing a version of that with the second age, but on an even larger scale where there are potentially like hundreds or even like a thousand years between scenes and you're not sure whether that's the case, that opens up some interesting storytelling opportunities. Yes, I think it will. If it's done well, it could be a great way to have a comprehensive, more comprehensive view of this world, of the history, how everything ties in, how people are related. I just hope that they don't lose people who are like, I'm confused. And, you know, we reference Game of Thrones a lot, but Game of Thrones, I think they did do, I think they did do this well, not this exact thing. Um, but they did lose a lot of people because people were saying, oh, this is confusing. There's too many storylines. Um, I've heard that from many, many people. Of course, the people who hung on, you know, were rewarded with the beautiful storytelling. But um, but yeah, we'll see. I, I, I kind of am catching the vision a bit now. Yeah. But, you know, I, I would also be OK with them just telling, making this entire show uh, take place within Isildur's lifetime. I would also be OK with that because... I like smaller stories. Just going back to the fact I was always hoping they weren't going to try and tell mm-hmm. a 3000 or 2000 year story in one series, just because that I thought would just never work uh, unless they did massive jumps and be like each season being a standalone story. And then they jump forward several hundred years. That'd be one way to do it, but then you don't have continuity with characters except for the Elven characters. Um, but so I always like, you know, think about the Lord of the Rings itself is a story that takes place not counting the 17 years that happens between Bilbo's party. And when Frodo has to leave the Shire, Um, if you don't think about that 17 years, really the main story happens within, you know, a matter of months. I mean, really you could Mm -hmm. think of it in terms of weeks. Um, uh, Where was I going with that? (laughs) But I always, I always wanted them to try and tell a, a, a smaller story in terms of timeline so that they can right. tell a bigger story in terms of themes and character. And so if mm. they tell just a Sildur story, great, because then we really get to know it with Sildur. And there's so much that happens in the Calabeth and Arfar's own rising to power, 
uh, oh, coming yeah. after That's the faithful. That's a dark, dark period. Dark period yeah. there. Yeah. But could be a really interesting showpiece. And you will see Sauron in that. You will see Sauron. Right. And you will see them fighting battle, fighting a war. Right. So that, yeah, I mean, that could be, as I said, a really exciting uh, period to focus on. Very political, um, too. I mean, to the extent that you want a Game yeah, of Thrones yeah. type of story. I hope they don't tell it in this with the same style as Game of Thrones because the, the, the style has to feel different. It has to feel like Tolkien. And he just had a different approach than um, George Martin did. And George Martin will be the first to tell you that. Um, so I hope they tell it in a different way. But having a political uh, a plot line that involves political intrigue would be similar enough to Game of Thrones to grab a lot of those viewers. So it makes sense to oh, me yeah. that they would want to focus on the rise of our Pharaoh zone and that whole story. Oh yeah, most definitely. And you got the big bad villain. You've kind of got it all in that story. Yeah. It's so th- this is kind of like a little sub piece of, of the Isildur um, leak. So if we go back to August um, in an Instagram story from Nazanin um, Banyadi, who is an actress in the show and she's probably playing a major character. It was very quickly deleted, but in that, Instagram story, you could see a crew member wearing a hoodie from the studio that had text on it that was translated loosely to under the stars, the faithful. Okay. Now what that, what that refers to the faithful uh, is the group of Numenorians who remained faithful to the Valar while the rest of Numenor was being pulled to the dark side by Sauron. Sauron was corrupting Alpharazon and playing along playing on the Numenorians already sort of darkening spirits and their resentment about being mortal. He played on that and corrupted them and really turned them into worshipers of Morgoth. And while that was happening, while the majority of Numenor was turning evil, we could just say that um, there was a small group of Numenorians, relatively small relative to the rest of the island that remained faithful. And Hasildur and Elendil were part of that. And, um, all of the Numenorians that escaped the downfall are the faithful and the faithful were persecuted, heavily persecuted by our Pharazon. He tried to root them out. And, uh, so that's going to be the crux of the political intrigue is the sort of battling between our Pharazon and the faithful, some of whom still had, uh, power within the government, political power, um, a lot of allies. So it's, they were persecuted, but our Pharazon wouldn't, couldn't quite go, to the lengths of just actually killing them all. Although I think Sauron was trying to create that scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we're definitely, we're not only going to see a Sildur. I mean, if you're going to have a Sildur, of course you're going to see the faithful, but you know, these, these leaks together definitely confirm that. I'm glad, actually. I'm kind of glad that Isildur's going to have his moment in the sun because he gets such a bad rap. And yet... He did a lot of really noble things during his life that are never talked about. I mean, he's the reason that the white tree survives. Right, right. um, Lots, lots of different things. So in a way, it's redemption for this character that you that, you know, people who are exclusively movie watchers, which there are many of those people only know this. Oh, this is the guy who wouldn't destroy the right. Like what (laughs) an asshole. (laughs) You know, this is this is all his fault, basically. Yeah, this is all his fault. (laughs) Well, and Aragorn makes a big deal about that. You know, in the movie version, um, they play up Aragorn's lack of confidence and he doesn't trust himself and he he worries yes. that he has the same there's a scene you know 
Arwen the same says, weakness. Just because you're Isildur's heir doesn't mean you're Isildur himself. And he's like, same blood runs through my veins, the same weakness. And so Isildur really is portrayed as a weakness. weak, <laughs> a weak, you know, bad dude. But to your point, he was actually like yeah. a hero. I mean, he was a great, great, great man. And so that reframes his act of his failure to, mm-hmm. to get rid of the ring as the final failure of a man who was otherwise a great, great hero. And that will be an interesting arc that we will see in the show that, you know, we will see him being the hero that we root for that is so brave, all these acts of bravery, saving the, the white tree um, at great risk to his own life, you know, being part of the group that es- escapes Numenor. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of heroism as part of that. And then fighting the, the war, of the lost Alliance and all that. And then at the very last moment being corrupted, like seeing that arc, is going to be so dramatic. Very tragic. Very dramatic. Very tragic. Uh, Man, I did not see him coming as a major player, but here he is, and now I feel excited about it. Yeah. So moving on to another piece of news. This one's... We've had some big bombs already. This is the biggest of the bombs. This is, uh, you know, Hiroshima-level bomb here. Sir Lenny Henry did a radio interview with the BBC, a long interview where he talked about his career, you know, what he's done, where he's going. And in the course of that interview... They talked a good deal about Lord of the Rings and he said some things, you know, the show and the production has been incredibly under wraps. Everyone's been tight lipped. No one's allowed to say a word. You know, if Mm -hmm. someone tweets something, it gets deleted. If someone has an Instagram story that reveals anything, it gets deleted. You know, we don't know anything because Amazon wants it that way. And yet Lenny Henry goes out and does this interview and is just like, blah, 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 blah. And just like going off (laughs) (laughs) and telling, you know, just talking about the show as if there's no gag order that he's subject to. Uh, So I'm going to read the entire quote here just because I think it's so interesting. Um, Okay. So quote, Mm -hmm. for the last two years, I've been working on Lord of the Rings and it's an extraordinary thing. It's the biggest television show that's ever been made in terms of money and headcount. Literally 100 people on set glaring at you and trying to work out what you look like four feet tall. I'm a Harfoot because J.R.R. Tolkien, who is also from Birmingham, suddenly there were Black Hobbits. I'm a Black Hobbit. It's brilliant. And what's notable about this run of the books, it's a prequel to the age that we've seen in the films. It's about the early days of the Shire and Tolkien's environment. So we're an indigenous population of Harfoots. We're hobbits, but we're called Harfoots. We're multicultural. We're a tribe, not a race. So we're Black Asian and brown, even Maori types within it. It's a brand new set of adventures that seed some of the origins from different characters, and it's going to take at least 10 years to tell the story. Because it's based on the Silmarillion, which was almost like a cheat sheet for what happens next in this world in the Second and Third Ages. And the writers have a lot of fun in extrapolating it all out, and it's going to be very exciting. There's a very strong female presence in this. There's going to be female heroes in this evocation of the story. There's going to be little people as usual, end quote. So let's, I I sort of pulled out the five things that are really interesting that I want us to talk about from this. One, he confirms there will be hobbits and specifically they're Harfoots. Two, the hobbits are multiracial. Three, Mm -hmm. the show is about the early days of the Shire. Four, the story will take place, take at least 10 years to tell. And five, there will be a strong female presence. So let's take the first one first. There will be hobbits, specifically Harfoots. Jen, what do you think about this? 
oh, I can't wait that there's hobbits and that they're Harfoots. <laughs> um, diversity is a big topic right now. I think it's great that we're going to see a lot of that on screen. Um, I love hobbits and seeing the early days of hobbits founding the Shire. How did the Shire come to exist? More of their culture, more of their background. It's all it's all great. I am here for it all. Like, you just yeah, you just love those it. hobbits. You just could get. I just love those them. dang <laughs> hobbits. I just think they're the cutest things. <laughs> uh, yeah, cute, it's really cute little, cute little hobbits. No, it's great. It's um, I didn't see it coming. Once again, like this is surprising me. A lot of elements are surprising me because I'm like, wait, are they gonna pan back and how? How does this fit into the rest of the narrative? I'm not really sure because I didn't think we would see hobbits at all. Right, right. So I'm surprised. I'm really surprised. But you're pleasantly surprised. No reservations at all, it sounds like. Um, well, okay. I suppose I do have reserve. I'm excited to see hobbits, but I am a little nervous because I'm just not sure what the narrative is going to be like around right. these hobbits if right. what is there a story here because if there is a story to tell it will largely need to be invented yep. am i right about that totally 100 percent. I, I can't think of a narrative that is really detailed at all no uh, from I, this time that they're talking about so i'm just yeah i'm wondering if this is going to be a huge significant portion are we just going to see a little bit it's kind of confusing i mean i think it could be charming but i certainly hope it isn't cheesy or campy it has yeah. the potential to be uh, yeah i mean i am i love hobbits as well i have a lot of concerns about this and you know concerns whatever they can do a good job i'm sure it'll be great but um here's what i'm a little worried about here well let, let me take it a different way I always had concerns about this show because in the movies, the hobbits play such an important role, an important mm -hmm. narrative role. Their function, uh, among many other things, you know, thematically they're important, but their function in terms of the story as a storytelling device is they are our guides. You know, we talked about this in the, our episode with um, Dennis Wilson Wise, that the Lord of the Rings is like a, a portal fantasy. The idea that we start in the, a world that looks like our world. And then we're taken through some kind of portal. You know, in Narnia, it's uh, the wardrobe. In the Lord of the Rings, it's like the old forest. You know, they go through the old forest mm -hmm, where our mm -hmm. main characters leave the normal world and enter the world of fantasy where things like... The world like of fairy. The world of fairy. Will. Yes, absolutely. The world of fairy where there are elves and there are, you know, dark lords and there are Tom Bombadils and there are old man willows, you know, things that are supernatural. Um you have to go through that portal to get there. And the the importance of the hobbits is it roots us in this sense of home. They're characters we can connect with that, that are like us. And so as they go through this portal and enter this fairy world, as they learn about this fairy world, we learn about it. So it's like a, it's and you see this all the time, even in current movie making and storytelling. Uh, you have to create situations, excuses to give the audience information. And so one of the ways you do that is you have a main character who doesn't know anything, but needs to, know, needs to find out. And so characters are, other characters are constantly explaining the world to the hobbits. Elrond's explaining things. Gandalf is explaining things and informing the hobbits. And if the hobbits were a part of the world of fairy to start off with, we as the audience wouldn't learn that information because there'd be no reason 
for the characters to talk about the world in that way to each other, to explain the world to the audience. So the hobbits, from a storytelling perspective, are very, very important in The Lord of the Rings, not just because they're small and diminutive and, you know, the small can do great mm-hmm. deeds, like thematically that's important, but from a storytelling plot device um, perspective, they're important for that reason. And so I was asking myself, how are they going to accomplish that mm-hmm. in this show? Or are they going to bother? You know, are, are they going to find these main characters that have a, whether or not they're hobbits, that fill a similar function and then thrust them into the world of great deeds and, you know, battles with Sauron and things like that. Like they're living in a village and they go from this village into the world of fairy. Are they going to do something like that? And who's going to fill that void? Is it going to be hobbits? And I, I didn't know. And I was concerned that that they're just going to say from a marketing perspective and a business perspective, hey, people love hobbits. You know, Lord of the Rings is all about hobbits. So let's just jam hobbits into the story um, where mm. we know that we know, I mean, we know. Tolkien told us that they were not doing anything of note during this period. Right. He told no, us that they, they weren't. Existed. They lived quietly. Yeah. In Middle Earth, you but know, they existed. In, 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 but yeah. no one, no one knew about them, and the elves didn't know about them because they didn't do anything. And so, are we? Are they really going to tell a story about the hobbits, where it's true to canon, where they don't do anything of significance? I'm sure not. I'm sure if they're going to be main characters, they're going to have an active role in the plot, which means. It'll they're be invented with canon. It's going to be invented, and they're going that to be concerns me. Actors. I, I have, I have to tell you that concerns me just a bit. I guess I'm walking back my tone a little because I think what I was envisioning was like, oh, we'll just get a flash of the Shire just for nostalgia's sake. But I think you're absolutely right. I think if they're going to introduce them, they're probably going to be major players, and I think that can be problematic because they're not major players in the story they're right, telling. Right. Now they could uh, one way they could do it, and they'd have to have some courage to do it. But they could have the hobbits be major players in the story, but they don't contribute to the great deeds of the story. So they could be, you know, in the background, in the foreground in terms of what we see on screen, but in the background in terms of the great events that move the world. And you know, they're not going to interact with Sauron. They're not going to be part of his of defeating him in the War of the Last Alliance. Or they're not going to be a you know. A part of any of that but when there's a war with sauron i mean war is ravaging middle earth and that's going to affect everyone big and small and so they could tell mm. a small very human story of hobbits struggling to survive to to live to protect each other mm. in this war ravaged world and that would be a very dramatic story now in the course of surviving they wouldn't make a difference in terms of the war they're not going to turn the tides, nothing they're going to do uh, would would help defeat Sauron or one way or the other. They're not going to interact with Isildur. They're not going to interact with Gilgalad. They're, they're not going to interact with any of those people, but they're going to have a very dramatic, small story as just small people who are trying to survive, protect each other, and preserve a community in this war-ravaged world. I think that could be a great story, a great way of doing it, but I say it would take courage because it, it's it would take courage to have a main character that doesn't interact with the larger plot. Right. Um, I do think it would be effective. One effective way would be showing the establishing of the Shire as this haven, the haven that we know it to be the haven from the destruction that's going on in the outside world, as you mentioned, and sort of the reasons 
that they're so skeptical of the outside world, which we do see in the movies and in, in a lot in the books, is because they have they fought to create their own haven um, that is apart, that is separate. So, uh, yeah, I, I could see that. I, I It feels a little unnecessary in that I feel like there's so much material, other material that they have to work with from the time period that they're directing. Right. right. <laughs> so it does, it does feel like sort of a uh, here, we're going to throw you fans a bone and we love hobbits. There's no denying that, but yeah, is it necessary? I'm, I'm not. Yeah. Really, is it, is it going sold. to be forced fan service? Mm-hmm. If that's what it is, then it, I'm troubled because that's not a recipe for good storytelling when you're just jamming in fan elements to, to give winks to people who watch the movies. I mean, and they don't need to do that. You know, they need to remember. Here I am preaching to Amazon. You Amazon people need to remember. <laughs> but there, there's a whole generation of people that are going to be watching the show that maybe have never watched the films, or you know, they weren't right. around when the films came out. That maybe they've since watched them, but they don't. They watched them when they were kids or whatever. Um, not like you and me, where like we our youth was kind of defined by loving these films. Um, they mm-hmm. they can absolutely approach it like a clean slate, tell the new story, and get a whole. But they don't have to be slaves to old themes, old characters, old concepts. Um, so if they're bending over backwards no. to include habits just to appeal to you and me, the fans of the films, they don't need to do that. Well, we might be. I would be tickled by it if it were short and sweet, like a little nod. But I think I'd be annoyed if it's like, okay, so this bit, it's a brand new set of adventures. It takes some of the origins of a different character. It's going to take 10 years to tell the story. What are you talking about? That, right. yeah, yeah, I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> so, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a blip on the radar. Right, right. Yeah, and I wonder if he was, and we'll get to this later, but I wonder if he was talking about the Hobbit story or the whole story. And was he talking about, I'm sure he wasn't talking about how much time is passing within this story. I think no. he's talking about the number of seasons it's going to take to tell this story. Um, but so fellowship of fans. 10 years. Late. All right. We're going to be around a while. I know. Folks. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> Little did we know. We're just getting started. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is going to be taking us into our silver years. <laughs> right. Be collecting social security checks while we're watching the show. Um, <laughs> So Fellowship of Fans later tweeted that, quote, in season one, the main proto-Hobbit storyline is the tribe traveling west. In the show, they will be referred to as pioneers, but lore-wise, they are Harfoots, and they will be in six episodes. So six episodes is pretty much the entire season, except for the first two episodes, I think, um, because the first two episodes are like the prologue, it's the sort of standalone, and there's six episodes that tell the primary story. So they're I'm assuming they're going to be in the latter six, um, which makes sense. But um, this tells me, okay, it's the storyline of the tribe traveling west. We know a little bit about the origins of the hobbits that are in the Shire, that they came from a group that traveled there from somewhere else. Uh, they are definitely going to be screwing with the timeline here because that happens in the third age. Uh, you know, And I'm going to read some stuff from the uh, prologue of the fellowship of the ring the book here in a bit because it gives us some of this information but um, basically smeagol was from the uh, a group of essentially proto hobbits you know ancestors of the shire hobbits and he lived in the vales of anduin and it was before correct me if i'm wrong but 
That was before the hobbits migrated into the Shire. Yes. Is that right? Pretty sure. Right, because yeah, it's it's pretty sure, and that's just Smeagol in the Third Age. That's late Third Age. So the Shire is not established until Third Age. You know, the land is granted to them by by the king, Um, and so to move that up into the Second Age, when the the political um, situation with the realms of men is completely different. I mean, the Numenorians were in no position to grant the hobbits a grant of land into a, a protected space in the Shire in the second age. They were still at war with Sauron right through the end of the second age. Um, so it wouldn't make sense for them to be like, Oh, here all this really valuable fertile land that almost borders the coast and uh, is where all this war is happening. Yeah. We'll give it to you. Uh, that certainly can't be what's happening. So I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure they're obviously pulling from trying to pull from the actual history of the hobbits and how they migrated West to establish the Shire. They're pulling from that to create the storyline, but they're moving it up thousands of years and plopping it into a time period where it doesn't make sense for that to be happening. So I'm wondering how they're going to accomplish that. It's weird. It's weird. I, I feel more and more uneasy about it as we're talking about it. I started <laughs> on a high. I have since come down from that yeah, high. Every, just every, over the course of the conversation. <laughs> every party's got a pooper and that's me. Sorry. Yeah. And that's us. And, (laughs) and, you know, that's okay. We have things we're skeptical about. We're still going in open-minded, but this, yeah, yeah, this makes me a little uneasy. So Um, let me read a couple of things from the prologue to the fellowship of the ring that talks about the origins of hobbits. So quote, the beginning of hobbits lies far back in the elder days that are now lost and forgotten. Only the elves still preserve any records of that vanished time. And their traditions are concerned almost entirely with their own history in which men appear seldom and hobbits are not mentioned at all. Yet it is clear that hobbits had, in fact, lived quietly in Middle-earth for many long years before other folk became even aware of them. And later, quote, before the crossing of the mountains, the hobbits had already become divided into three somewhat different breeds, Harfoots, Stores, and Fallowhides. The Harfoots were browner of skin, smaller and shorter, and they were beardless and bootless. Their hands and feet were neat and nimble, and they preferred highlands and hillsides. The Harfoots had much to do with dwarves in ancient times, and long lived in the foothills of the mountains. They moved westward early and roamed over Eriador as far as Weathertop, while the others were still in the wilderland. They were the most normal and representative variety of hobbits, and far the most numerous. They were the most inclined to settle in one place and longest preserved their ancestral habit of living in tunnels and holes. So it certainly makes sense to make the Harfoots the pioneers here. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting, you know, this statement that the Harfoots had much to do with dwarves in ancient times. That's an interesting little little piece yeah. of information because maybe we'll see some interactions between the hobbits and the dwarves. You know, they're roaming all over Eriador, so there were dwarves all over Eriador. I mean, not just in the in the uh, Misty Mountains or the Mines of Moria, but in other places as well in Eriador, I believe, in the Second Age. So they could be interacting with them on their travels and maybe some of our dwarven plot lines intersect with our proto-hobbit plot lines. True, and it would be a nice reference to the Hobbit to have suddenly hobbits and dwarves. We've seen that before. It works, and it, maybe seeing that again could be interesting. Again, I just am hoping this doesn't take up too much space in the show. Like I'm, I, I am not hoping that it that it occupies a really large space. But it will. I'm telling you, it will. Okay. Because <laughs> right. right. Lenny Henry's a star, man. I mean, he's he's got major he star power. He, and I'm a fan. And I love that the things I, you know, don't get me wrong. I really love that the 
hobbits are multiracial, multicultural, and that we will see that. Um, I like that. And I like that he mentions, you know, obviously that there's female characters that are very prevalent. I like all that. I just wonder, I just have some skepticism about, again, about how it fits in. But um, yeah, my, my main concerns are with the presence of hobbits, period, in the storyline. Um, the other stuff I, I, I like, but I think it's worth talking about, you know, this, sure. his statement that the hobbits are multiracial. And so I'll just reread the quote here, the relevant quote. Quote, we're an indigenous population of Harfoots, and it's interesting that he used the word indigenous. I'm not sure that that's used correctly here, but we're an indigenous population of Harfoots. (laughs) You can tweet at him about it. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. Call him out. Uh, (laughs) No. We're we're hobbits, but we're called Harfoots. We're multicultural. We're a tribe, not a race. So we're black, Asian, and brown, even Maori types within it. Um, He says multicultural, but I think he probably meant multiracial with a single culture. You know, because he says we're a tribe. Um, We've got a lot of edits for you, Len. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's a live interview. I mean, you know, it's fine. Yeah, sure. But I'm just He's trying just, to, yeah. I'm trying to extract the real information about the show from someone who's sort sure. of speaking off the cuff. Um, yes. This is, and you can probably imagine that this is something that has caused some consternation amongst certain circles in the Tolkien fandom online. There are some Tolkien fans who just, you know, beat their chests and think that, multiple races have no place in Lord of the Rings that it's because Tolkien was an Englishman creating a fantasy backstory for England that that meant he conceived of every character as being white, which is just not true. It's just not accurate at all. Uh, But some people feel that way. And also there's a sentiment among some groups that any intrusion of modern sensibilities about racial sensitivities um, gender sensitivities, any awareness of that whatsoever, and informing the way you make a show based on those sensitivities, that just bothers some people. They just don't want it. And so there is certain, certainly some chatter online about how, oh, we're just going to see a, you know, a woke Amazon show and they're jamming in a bunch of races for no, for no good reason. And uh, I want to respond to that. I think it's worth responding to that a little bit because I just don't want that to go unanswered. So I have some thoughts, but I don't, I don't want to monopolize the space. I mean, Jen, what do you think about this notion of this idea that they're going that the hobbits are going to be multi-racial, essentially, uh, or they're going to be played by multiple different races, but that different races are all hobbits? I think it's great, and I think it's clear that it also does fit in with what Tolkien's intention was. I mean, he he mentions in the books that they're darker, browner of skin. And that they look different from the hobbits that you, the modern hobbits. So I think it's both things that it does fit in. But even if it didn't, you know, it is, we are having a cultural conversation about diversity and representation on screen. That remains important to many people. And I am personally 100% in favor of this. Yeah. I'm certainly in favor of uh, more representation within the show and finding ways to do that. I do think it's interesting that one group, you know, one tribe of Harfoots would be depicted by different races. I mean, I expected them to achieve diversity by focusing on plot lines amongst different tribes. You know, maybe you'd have ancestors of the Easterlings or the Southrons. You know, I'm thinking of groups that appeared in the third age that, that were present in the, um, the Lord of the Rings films. And, having stories set within these different groups. And so you'd have these different groups would be played by different 
actors of different mm-hmm. ethnicities. So you'd have, you know, tribes of men that were maybe uh, played by black actors, different tribes of men that were played by Asian actors and doing it that way. And, and but having like legitimate storylines within each of those groups. Um, that's kind of what mm-hmm. I expected. And it's an interesting choice to basically what they're making the decision to do is they're going to say racial, uh, you know, skin color and racial phenotype is just not a thing in this world where we're not going to worry about it. Um, mm-hmm. Where you can have, we're just going to ignore it altogether. And we're going to have people who are, I mean, I guess, are they going to have like brothers and sisters of different skin colors and different races? And we're just going to ignore it. And that's an interesting choice because it's asking the audience to, believe that this is a world where there's like i guess no such thing as evolution where like you know skin tone and racial phenotypes would arise through evolution and so like people who grow up in different groups would have a different look to them um which is like a little inconsistent with with tolkien i mean tolkien didn't care about skin color i think that's like pretty well established if you read, read his stuff he just like did not consider him concern himself with skin tone at all or hardly at all but you know he did have groups that sort of looked the same in terms of, you know, the, the writers of Rohan were generally blonde and they, they had more like Germanic features. And mm-hmm. I kind of consider them to be almost like the Germanic or Middle English ancestors, whereas the, the Dunedain and the Numenorians were maybe a little bit darker skin, maybe more Egyptian in terms of culture. Um, and they're all, you know, brown hair. So like he did sometimes, he said like this group of people had these types of features and these people, types of people right. had these types of features. And it sounds like they're, that Amazon is saying in this world, culture is totally separated or like tribes and groups of people. There's no relation to them growing up together and living in a place. And there's no connection between that and their racial appearance or their skin color and their phenotype at all. So that's an interesting choice. And um, I'm fine with it because I don't think race and skin color mattered to Tolkien. And I don't think that it, was a part of his the stories that he told at all. So it's not a problem, but it's just interesting because it might um, take some people out of it. Cause it seems so unrealistic. It's so different from the modern world where people from certain groups have certain phenotypic expressions. So I don't know. It's just interesting. It is interesting. And could it be, could it possibly be that the, that different tribes come together to form a multicultural tribe? Yes. So different. Right. So they they're blending, you know, they're blending all together into one. I, I mean, it could be that. I, I so think you're it, totally you right. Know, it we, it, it we could see. be that. Yeah, because this stuff happens over thousands and thousands of years, right? So a lot happens in thousands of years. You have um, sure. different tribes growing up, and then they they migrate and then they merge. Um, it seemed like the way that Tolkien wrote his histories. I mean, the Silmarillion is primarily focused on Elvish history, so that's going to be different. In terms of their migratory patterns, they're not proliferating at the same rate, you know, reproducing at the same rate. So um, we're not seeing that type type of thing with the elves. But um, you know, when stuff happens in the real world over thousands of years, you do have a lot of that. You know, groups will grow up together and sure. develop an ethnic look over you know hundreds of years, and then migrate and and mix with other groups. Um, Definitely. But so my only concern here with this is that it's actually missing an opportunity potentially to tell a story that involves positive messages of, of, of racial relations. And what I mean by that is, I think if you really want to get at the true spirit of what Tolkien thought about race, and not really race, but different cultures interacting, because, and again, I'll, I'll say this again, I don't, think, I don't think he thought about race. I think he thought more in terms of culture. But either way, 
if you want to see his views on that stuff, look at the relationship between Gimli and Legolas. You know, you had the 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 race of dwarves and the race of elves always at odds. You know, forever somewhat em- enemies, um, and yet the relationship, the friendship that Tolkien holds up as one of the greatest relationships in the whole story, is Legolas and Gimli, an elf and a dwarf, who set aside those cultural differences to find the that they love, you know, love the person inside, and. Mm-hmm. There are other, you know, lesser examples of that throughout the Legendarium, um, but you know that's that's the best example. But there are several ver- versions of that in the Legendarium. Oh yeah, we may see we may see some of that depicted. You're you're absolutely right, though. Well put. Yeah. And hopefully we do see that. If it's not the Hobbits, then we'll see it, you know, with another set of characters. Right. And so the reason I bring that up is, if they're choosing to ignore physical expressions of race in the show, are they going to just not touch that issue altogether? Um, are they not going to talk about different peoples having problems with each other and then potentially overcoming those problems? Are, are they not going to be touching you know, racial unification, racial divides at all? Because I think that was important to Tolkien and he important in the sense that he wrote stories that sent the message that it's important not to be prejudiced and biased against each other. Right. Um, and based those on are parents, right. Based on appearance, based on what race or group you're a part of culture, your different culture, yeah. um, that we're all, you know, although there are differences in our cultures that we're all the same at our root that, and we can find, um, harmony and fellowship amongst each other. And I hope that they touch on those themes. And my only concern with learning that, that this group of Harfoots is going to be multiracial is that maybe they're just saying we're, we're more concerned about creating a world where race is not an issue than creating a world where race is an issue and telling race positive stories. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, it, I think we just don't know enough to comment on it's, it's an interesting thought and theory. I, I'm certainly intrigued to see how they do that because that does feel like they're kind of whitewashing something that is, has been and remains a very big topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think I agree with you that it is a mistake to ignore it altogether as if it's suddenly, or for these people, it's a complete non-issue when it, it is an issue, <laughs> if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, either way, I mean, I, I'm glad that we're going to see a lot of representation and, and diversity in the show. Yeah. The people who have a problem with that can just go hang, I think. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> if any of you are our listeners. I just... Um, I think you're yeah. kind of missing missing the point. I don't think that those sentiments are consistent with Tolkien's views on the subject yeah. um, or the stories that he told. So, um, you know, I'm glad that we're going to see a, a show that where fans in every corner of the world can see themselves in it. Um, yeah, that's very cool. In, in, a, in, a, in a more literal way than just like, you know, the, the soul of the character or whatever, you know, that they can s- literally see someone who kind of looks like them and because that right. doesn't make it will know, not all be blonde the way you experience it yeah blue-eyed elves it will be right many different people many different looking people yeah. that's great um and that said i think um we move on to our very last segment well and not the last segment i i don't want to gloss totally over his statement that there will be a strong female presence in the story oh of course yeah 
I don't really have anything to say about that. Other no, than I have good. nothing to say because <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if he's talking about the story overall or the hobbits, female hobbits question. Right. Mark? Right. I mean, yeah, like, that's a good question. Know. That's a good question because, you know, how, how much exposure does each actor have to the whole story? You know, he's a hobbit. So he's part of the hobbit storylines. Is he on set for when they're filming the Elvis storylines or, you know, the storylines with men or dwarves? My guess is probably not. Um, they're probably keeping him kind of sequestered and separated. That's what so. I would think. I mean, unless he's referring to the fact that we know Galadriel's going to be a big player. Sure. And we, we've be. known that. And we've been excited about that for a while now. Right, right. And remain, remain very excited. Yeah. But so it's obviously very good to have a strong female presence. There's really no reason not to have female it's heroes. It's about time. That we, you know, w- there there is plenty of uh, fodder and material for those types of stories. Absolutely. Um, you know, Numenorean queens and, and their role in, in the Calabath downfall of Numenor. And yeah, there, there's plenty of plenty. stuff that Tolkien gave us to support, you know, canon consistent stories that focus on female heroes. So I'm very excited yeah, to see that. Absolutely. Tolkien did write female heroes, believe it or not. Folks. <laughs> Just he not did. Very many. <laughs> not as many, not as many. The, I wish there were more, but they exist and they're great. So la- last little piece, um, and this is, boy, after everything else we've, we've talked about, um, this is uh, not nearly as significant, but it is interesting. Um, we are going to see a big battle between Orc and Numenorean armies in season one. So right. exclusive from Fellowship of Fans in season one of Lord of the Rings on Prime. There is a major battle between Numenorean and Orc armies filmed in late July. It was on a random miscellaneous battlefield, dead trees, bark, dirt, and sticks all over the place, along with explosions and rocks being catapulted. And another tweet, the same Numenoreans will attack besiege a castle or castle set, which is occupied with orcs. The set had dead fake horses, smoke and fire. It is unsure whether this castle stronghold is an orc castle or being currently occupied by orcs. And then the last tweet on this subject, most of the orcs are prosthetic. Weta, practical effect orcs, and a lot of time and money has been spent on creating the realism of orcs in the show. Thank the Lord. Thank yes, I am so happy about this. I mean, it's they're going to, in my mind, they're going to be more similar to the orcs that we saw in Lord of the Rings. Yes, which were great, which looked so realistic, so much more realistic than the total CGI Hobbit orcs. Yep. So yeah, this is exciting. I think this actually. All this entire segment, again, harkens back to the fact that I think we're going to be seeing the Arfair Zone time period of Numenorians clashing with the orcs, clashing with the Middle-earth foes. I think this fits in nicely with that. So one thing all of this news tells me and makes me a little bummed out about is that we are definitely, I think, definitely not going to see the story of Eldarion and Arendis just... Not going to happen, I think. Not um, in this season, not, but who knows? Well, mm, I mean, if we're starting as, if, with a Zildur, a Zildur, I mean, how would they would they go back in time at some point in a later season to show us Eldarion and Arendis? In a later season, maybe. It's possible. Or maybe a spinoff? In a, maybe in, uh, so, well, yeah, I, I'm thinking it would be a spinoff or another show, which would be great. So maybe it's a good thing because, you know, hey, if you make this story more narrow, it leaves more material for future adaptations and future spinoffs. True. Um, but so I, I think it seems like we're going to be starting this show because it's going to be later in the second age. It's going to be after the first battle between men and elves. So the 
the rising darkness, it's going to be, the show's going to start us off right in the thick of fighting, essentially, I think. You know, Sauron's going to be moving right. again for the second time. There will already be orcs and there will already be battles in the first season. So it, it's going to be jumping right into the action pretty quickly, um, which I think I'm, I think I'm on board with all that. Yeah, same. I think starting out with a bang is a good thing as long as it doesn't lean too heavily into battle scene after battle scene after this is one big battle. Um, because I, Tolkien was not about that, actually, no, at all. Not at all. But not a few all. tasteful battle scenes, go for it. It worked in Lord of the Rings. I think it can work again for the series. I mean, even and even in Lord of the Rings, which I, I don't think they overdid it, but even that was like, I mean, 10 times, 100 times more than what Ten Tolkien twi- actually yeah. gave gave us so um yeah they're gonna have to show a lot of restraint not to just do massive battle scene after massive battle scene because you'll lose me if there's too many battle scenes and I'm it's just gonna not check good out. storytelling man it's just not good storytelling focus on the characters you know yeah. I, I love a good helms deep i mean you know helms deep was a great scene in the films you know give me something that's that's sure give me a great big or battle, the scene battle outside well told, of but... minas minas tirith i mean that was an excellent battle scene eh, i'm not but as it was balanced what I thought it was balanced so well with storytelling and you know flashing between the scenes on the battlefield and then showing you know the scene what's happening inside the city and showing what's happening elsewhere I I, yeah I thought thought it was was okay yeah I mean I I didn't dislike it I just not as good as Helm's Deep because Helm's Deep is the the one of the best battle scenes of all time fantasy battle scenes of Hmm. all time in terms of siege battles I, I think it's like generally regarded as one of the greatest siege battles of all time. I think I like the scene outside of Minas Tirith better. I think we'll have to go toe-to-toe when we get to oh, this in the all movies. Right. Ding, ding, ding. All right. I mean, the speeches. The speeches alone. Right oh, now. Oh, I mean, it. that's that, such a good speech. That gives me, I mean, I get chills. Chills. Still. It's beautiful. Beautifully shot. We're, yeah. we're, jump, we're getting ahead. Of, we will get to all this. If you like this content, stay tuned. <laughs> we are reviewing all of the Peter Jackson movies. Um, but so that that's our what, news for this week. And uh, it is, that's it. you know, it gives us a lot more to think about. I think it tells us where this show is going. We get a sense of where in the second age is going to be starting. Um, right. There's still more that we don't know than what we do know. But knowing that Isildur is going to be featured right from the get go is huge. So um, Mm -hmm. we're definitely going to be seeing the fall downfall of Numenor and probably through the war of the last Alliance, probably not going to be seeing the early second age, probably not going to be seeing the forging of the rings, except maybe in a flashback um, in a later season, probably I would be my guess. They might, they might flashback and do a a series of episodes on that, but um, it's not going to be, the primary plot line that we'll be focused on. So kind of interesting. Indeed, a lot to mull over, a lot to chew on. We hope this has been a fun and informative episode for you. And we will see you next time for our continuation of Fellowship of the Ring. I'm excited. What's the surprise? Okay. Well... I am going to talk to you today about lipstick. That's right, lipstick. Okay, excuse me while I go somewhere else. 
I'm gonna. I'm reading from an article uh, Evoke online. So there is a 50 year old Clinique lipstick that is selling out all over the world. It is sold out. You cannot get this lipstick. This lipstick that was launched back in 1971. This is from the online article. Has gone viral to the extent that it's selling out across the globe. We do not know where to get this last few, is but first let us podcast? explain what this madness is all about. The lipstick in question is the brand's almost lipstick, which comes in two shades. Black honey is the shade everyone is going mad for, but the other color is pink honey. It is sold out in Sephora and other major beauty outlets because it has become a TikTok sensation. And the reason has, it is a berry shade that works for everyone and fans love it. It was discovered by a TikToker and made... uh, Made known by this famous TikToker, Shani Darko. I'm so curious where this is going. That Arwen wore this <laughs> lipstick. Liv Tyler oh, wore this lipstick okay. in Lord of the Rings. So this TikToker, Shark Shani Darko, has gotten 2.1 million views of her explaining the lipstick, explaining the link to Lord of the Rings, and the scene that Arwen, that Liv Tyler wears the lipstick in the Lord of the Rings. And it instantly sold out what this shade and it is quite cl- so i mean i this kind of blew my mind because it's been so first of all right. it's how been is like it 20 still years. in production it's it had come back it had they it had been out of production and then they they came back with a limited batch which is why oh. it's already gone it's already gone when they so, came out with the batch did it did they like publicize the fact that it was as part of their marketing this, were they releasing that or did she no, like this, this TikToker news. is the one who found it out. How'd she find it out? Broke the news. I think it's in, I think, I'm pretty sure it's in an article somewhere. Like when Liv talk, when they talk about Liv Tyler's makeup as uh, Arwen. Like there are, I, I think it was known, but it was probably like a forgotten fact. Like maybe it had been popular when the time came. Um I, I actually do think it's a beautiful shade of lipstick. It's kind of like a berry color. I was not able to get my little paws on this lipstick. However, <laughs> I know somebody who was able to get her paws on the lipstick, and she is here to provide. She she sent in a little review of the lipstick. What? <laughs> 